I love singing the psalms. It gives us an opportunity to sing things that might be hard sometimes even to say out loud. Um, and I think we just saying some of those things. Our text today is Psalm 85 as we continue our study in the psalms over the summer. Psalm 85. What I want you to listen for is the movement of the psalm and of how it goes from remembrance all the way to these connecting of dots uh, for the people of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. God, thank you for your word. It is truly light and life. We pray that you would shape us by the reading and hearing of it. Father, as we gather, as we've sung multiple times, even this morning, we do so as those who are prone to wonder. We pray that your word this morning and your spirit would speak to the wandering heart. Again, revive, return. Lord, we ask these things of you because they're too big for us. It's clear, even in our psalm, that that's true. So would you be pleased to be at work? In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Sometimes I think it's, it would be easy as the people of God to say, okay, I'm, I'm saved and now I'm good. I'm good to go. I, I've seen the, the truth of the gospel and I'm, I'm getting stagnant in my faith. Sometimes Christians find themselves in sin. That's what I'm talking about. What does it mean to live a, a, a cross-shaped life? A life informed by the glory of Jesus, the Son of God who was manifest on earth, come to save sinners. It's not just belief in Him, this, this one-time thing, and then life just moves on. 
No, that's, that's not our story. That's not my story, and that's not your story either. And thinking about how the Psalms point to Christ, Psalm 85 probably isn't one that comes to, to mind. Like, tell, give me a psalm that, that points to Jesus. You probably wouldn't think of Psalm 85. Yet, because mine didn't either, yet reading this psalm last week and this week and, and beginning to think about all the ways that this psalm points to Christ, I've, I've been utterly overwhelmed. The psalm speaks about the forgiveness of sins, the turning away of the wrath of God, the restoration of the people of God, the fulfillment of the promises of God, the presence of the glory of God, His righteousness, His mercy. In other words, this psalm is about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to save sinners. Two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 84 and this deep longing that the psalm presents for home. And I think in some way, this Psalm 85 is an answer to Psalm 84. How do we get home? And even when we get home and, and things aren't exactly right with us and we realize that there's still very much work to do in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own lives, where do we go then? I think this psalm is pointing the way. What does it look for, like for exiles to return? That's what Psalm 84 was about. It's this psalm of exile and then 85 is an answer. They're, they're back in the land. The land has this big feature for them. And actually, maybe think about where we're going in the fall with Esther and Daniel. We're going we're gonna to ask the question, what does it look like to live as the people of God as exiles? We're hearing some of that again today in Psalm 85. Our psalm begins with a remembering of God's favor. This memory then gives rise to this question of being restored and revived. And then there's a shift where the, the psalmist waits for a response from God and longs for future grace and hope. And I think if you hear those four things, you, you can, and if you have the ability by the Spirit of God to, to lay your life over those, I think you're going to learn a lot. If we could frame the situation of our psalmist, it would be this. The people of God were exiled. They defied the covenant that God had made with them. And so God did what He promised. He expelled them from the land. We see land in verse 1 and verse 12. It plays a, a big role in the whole psalm. One thing we should say about the land, whenever you're reading along in the Old Testament and you see land, don't immediately think United States of America. It's a huge problem. Don't think our land. Don't think Shreveport, Louisiana, the United States. What would be more accurate for us today would be something like this the people of God. That would be more appropriate for us to think about when we read land, if we're, if we're tr trying to think about ways to apply God's word in our life. There are right ways for people to view the land, and all of those right ways have to do with Christ himself. 
It was always proximity to, to God that mattered. With these things in, my, in mind, let's look at the psalm first remembering in verses 1 through 3. They, they were invited to remember, Lord, you were favorable. Listen to the verb tenses. You were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. All these past tense things, all things that God has already done, and they were living in light of them. Here we have the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Remember your story. This is like saying, take out your photo album, right, from when childhood pictures, and remember your former life. Learn and grow from that former life. And, and the opening of the psalm, he's taking out his photo album, and he's remembering all that God has done for him. For Judah and Israel, this meant remembering the grace of God that he brought them into the land to begin with and then he restored them to the land that had once been lost in exile. At the center of this memory, though, is something that each and every one of us must remember. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. One clear application of this is to remember your salvation. Remember that God has saved you. Remember that you are a sinner and that God in His grace has turned away His wrath from you. That though you deserve His wrath, you don't get it. Remember God's faithfulness. God remembered the land. God remembered his original intent all the way back in Genesis. God made a place for us and he put us in his place and we were designed by God to live with him in his place forever. That's a gorgeous picture, but we, we utterly blew the perfection of that place. We fell, we rebelled against God in Adam, but God did not forget his people. God remembers. God remembers his covenant. In some senses, we can say that this issue of the land is, is giving us the whole suite and scope of salvation itself. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God remembers us. Do you remember your experience with God? Do you remember how he has delivered you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. What does that mean for you? A better way to put it is this. Have you forgotten your story? Have you forgotten how gracious God has been to you? Calvin says this, quote, Our faith would immediately succumb under adversity and sorrow would choke our hearts were we not taught to believe from the experience of the past that God is inclined compassionately to hear the prayers of his servants choked hearts if we forget. Do you have a choked heart this morning? Is this your story this morning? Do you remind yourself time and time again as you face adversity, do you remind yourself of the truth of the gospel? That's what the psalmist is doing. 
If you find your heart being choked, remember God's faithfulness. Remember God's favor to you. Remember that God has restored you. Remember Christ. Have you forgotten him this morning? Remember him. So the psalmist tells us to remember God's favor, but he gets more specific than that. He says, remember forgiveness of sin. This is a very specific thing to remember. Verses 2 and 3 remind us of what God has done. Remember that God forgives iniquity, literally sin and guilt. God removes the guilty verdict on our lives. It goes on, God covers our sin and removes his wrath. How can a holy God remove sin like this? Remember, this is the Old Testament. They're looking forward and they're seeing through types and shadows that can never fulfill, but they're looking where? They're looking to Christ, the only one who could ever cover our sin. The sacrifices, they were reminded that they all deserved death. That lamb didn't deserve to die, but it had to die in my place because I sinned. That lamb was never enough. That lamb only served to point them ahead to the true forgiveness. 1 Peter 2, he himself, that is Christ, bore our sins in his body on a tree that we, might, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. In Christ, we have so much more than Israel had. We look back on the finished work. Everything they had in types and shadows, we have in full, we have in complete. God incarnate his life and death and resurrection for you. Do you remember this morning? Or better yet, have you forgotten? You remember that God has forgiven your guilt? You remember that the blood of Christ has covered your sin? Do you remember that God has withdrawn his righteous wrath laying it instead on Christ? Do you remember that God has turned away from his hot anger in the person and work of Christ, or have you forgotten? Listen, if you're here this morning and you call yourself Christian, this is your story. This is you. Having remembered the the goodness of God in the past, he, he now turns and ask the Lord for restoration and revival. And this is, this is the trick of this psalm. This is what you have to pay attention to. All of that is in the past. Remember all that God has done, but now they're back in the land and they found out something. They've messed up again. Judah restored from Babylonian captivity, coming back into the land, and suddenly they find that they're idolaters again. They again slide into the idolatry of their hearts, whatever that looked like for Israel. But I'm I'm telling you, this is our story as well. This is grace. This is me and you. We, though we remember these good things, the blessing of God, the forgiveness of sin, we too slide like they do. And here they turn, they turn to the Lord. This first section was talking about forgiveness of sin, and the second section is asking God for renewal and revival. The Shorter Catechism defines justification as an act of God's free grace. 
wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. It's a definitive act of God's grace. I kind of think about that as verses 1 through 3. This is what God has done. Remember it. Sanctification is defined a bit different. It is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. This is sanctification. This is the ongoing work. This is the work of 4 through 7. 1 through 3, you're justified. You're forgiven. Verses 4 through 7, there's more work that is needed in your life. You have not arrived and neither have I. If you ever think to yourself, and I don't don't think any of you do, I don't think any of you sit around on a Friday night propping your feet up thinking, man, I've arrived as a Christian. But I do think sometimes we forget. Listen to the psalm, restore us again. They've just said God has done all of this. Great things. We're, we're saved. We're in. We're back in the land. And now restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry forever? Will you prolong the anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us salvation. Two words control this section. Revival and restoration. Restore, literally asking God to turn around, to bring us back. Revive, literally asking God to give life again. These are the people of God. These are the children of God asking for God to turn around, to turn them around, and to bring revival. What a great way to see repentance. calling out to God, asking to be restored. Clearly, God is angry with a sinful generation, but they're literally asking for God to turn things around. Where do we go when we we know we're a believer, we know we're a Christian, but we've utterly blown it again, and our circumstances are derailing us on every side? Where do we go? What do we do? The psalm is pointing the way. It's saying, call out to the Lord, ask for him to again restore, to turn things around, for God to be at work. Have you ever thought much about revival? What does revival even mean when I was growing up? Have you ever attended a revival? Nobody here? Nobody else here? Okay, a couple of you have. So revival meant a a, a church service that started on a Sunday, and you met all Sunday. And then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and it would end on either that Saturday or even if it was true revival that next Sunday, you would go again. It was just church all week. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but that is not the same thing that is presented in Scripture when it talks about revival. Revival is the giving of life poured out by God Himself. It's not meetings that you attend. They're asking for God to again give life. And these, by the way, these are the people of God asking for this. This isn't some outsider. Right? These are the people of God back in the land, restored by God, renewed, healed, all the things we said. They're the ones asking for it. 
true revival, I would argue, looks like repentance and faith. What does it look like for Grace Prez to experience revival? It would look like repentance and faith. It would look like growing as people who are willing to repent of our sin and again ask God to shape and change and mold us. That's biblical revival. What feels cold and dead is suddenly enlivened by God himself. True revival. I think revival would look like us growing more and more in the gospel. It would look like becoming less selfish and way more loving. It would look like us loving the worship of God here together, but also at home by ourselves. It would look like a desire to see the steadfast love of the Lord spill over from our church into other people, our neighbors. Notice how the psalmist is calling on God using his own name from Exodus 34, our Old Testament lesson, God names himself the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, the root and ground of revival. And and this kind of sanctification is the character of God himself. God has to be at work doing this. You're like, what's our part? Our part is asking for him to work. Remembering our salvation and asking the Lord to be at work, helping us, getting us out of this. One commentator notes, although God may not immediately grant us manifest tokens of his returning favor, yet we must not cease to persevere in asking. Keep asking, child of God. You're like, I'm wrestling with this besetting sin or I've fallen into this grievous pattern of life that hurts me. Keep asking. That's what's being modeled for us in the psalm. Keep asking. Ask for God to restore. Ask for God to renew. Notice how this prayer is tied to memory. It seems that remembering the past comes along with it. Asking God for the present. Remembering that God forgives sin. And the backbone of the covenant is God himself. It leads us to to fly to him, to ask him. But if we're forgetting the gospel, if we're forgetting the good news, if we're forgetting that we are the ones forgiven by Christ, we're not going to go and ask him for help. We don't actually believe he can do it. The heart of revival and renewal is remembering God and knowing that God will not change his character, though we change. He does not change. He is gracious and merciful. He truly is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Notice all the questions rooted in God's covenant promises. Are you going to be angry with us forever? Are you going to prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? So that your people may rejoice in you? When's the last time you prayed anything like that? I had to ask myself that question this week, and it's been a long time. Lord, are you going to leave us in this situation? Are you going to leave me like this? It's an incredible prayer. You find sin in your heart. It's hard to to cut out. It's hard to root out. You, You don't actually know the depth of it. Have you asked like the psalmist? Are you going to leave us like this forever? 
Is your anger constantly going to be over me? These questions lead the psalmist to this third movement, which I think is a great place for us to go as well. So the psalmist has urged remembering. He's asked the Lord for revival and a a return. Now the the psalmist is content to wait for an answer. Notice verse 8 and 9. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Sure, his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Suddenly the psalm moves from corporate to personal. Did you notice the shift? Let me hear. This isn't just about all of us collectively together as the people of God. This isn't just about the the broad universal church. This is about individuals. Let me hear. Let me hear from the Lord. Having asked the Lord to to return and revive, the, the people now anticipate that the Lord, in fact, will act. That takes faith. This is a prayer of faith. I'm willing to wait for an answer. The first way the psalmist expects God to work is that God will speak. God will reveal His will to His people. We know that this is true. God has done this in His Word. God has revealed Himself to us. If you hold your Bible in your hands, one of the things that you hold is is an answer to this prayer of the psalmist. Will you speak? We need you. Listen, child of God, we have an answer already. We have his whole counsel written out for us. Are you waiting on a word from him? Read. Read his word. Delight in it. Yes, the people of God should utterly expect to hear from our maker. And we have heard from him. A second expectation that the psalmist speaks of is that God will speak peace to his people, his saints. The term here, again, we've said this over and over, is shalom. It means wholeness, prosperity, well-being. This peace is offered to the people of God, his saints. The saints of God can expect peace, but there's also a warning. But let them not turn back to folly. Right? We're remembering where we were in 4 through 7. We're remembering that things got terrible. We're remembering those patterns of thought and life that defied God, that got us in trouble to begin with. Isaiah 57 says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Did you come here lacking peace? Maybe you didn't. Maybe everything was fine. But I think many of us lack peace. As we gather together as the people of God, we, we lack peace. They expect fully that God will come and speak peace to them. There's a third expectation of the psalmist. It's waiting on salvation. In verse 7, the psalm asks for salvation. In verse 9, that request is answered. Here, salvation is very specific. I wonder what you would say if we could sit down this week and interview every single one of us. How would you answer what is salvation? The psalmist defines it in a very interesting way. That glory may dwell in our land. That's salvation. 
that glory will be present in this place. The glory of God not being distant, but being near, present with his people. From the Old Testament, this would be the the glory of God in the tabernacle, the glory of God in the temple, shining his light. However, that falls woefully short because the real glory of God is revealed in a person. Dwelling with us. Christ reveals the unmitigated glory of God in the true tabernacle, the true temple. In Christ, we get salvation and the glory of God dwelling with us. He is not distant, but has come near. We remember that God has saved us. We look back on his saving work. And we find ourselves in trouble again. We cry out to God asking for restoration, renewal, revival. We need God to give us life. Then we wait on the Lord. We wait expecting Him to speak, to make Himself known. We need someone to speak benediction over us, to speak peace to us. We expect that out of the chaos, God is going to graciously give peace and save us. Finally, out of this expectation, we get the reality itself. The last stanza of the psalm is beautiful. Verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. What in the world? That's so strange. That sounds strange. The psalmist is setting things up to go together that usually don't go together. Not in our fallen world. Yes, God is steadfast love, but you and I are not always faithful. Yes, God is perfectly righteous, but you and I do not always experience perfect peace. And all of this is why the world was built to begin with. We experience these disparate ideas. We experience them in our own hearts. Listen, you are not the place where steadfast love and faithfulness meet. I am not the place where righteousness and peace kiss each other, coming together in perfect union. For many of us, if we're honest, we tend to view God through either one lens or another, either God is righteous judge or he's merciful savior, but he's not both, depending on the day. For some of us, we experience this righteous judge and under that righteous judge, we never have peace. See what the psalmist is doing? He's saying all the ways that you view God and your different lenses with which you're viewing things, they all come together, but they come together in Him, not you. The ultimate hope that the psalmist is pointing us to is the Lord Jesus Christ that fits all of these things together perfectly for us. It's not about your ability to hold it together, child of God. It's about Him. Again, we have... This gorgeous image, faithfulness, springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. It's these touching of heaven and earth. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Those completely restored by Christ will walk paths of righteousness. 
I wonder again in this text, can we see some of ourselves? Here at the end, we have this image of perfect harmony, glory, beauty, all things healed, no more sin. The steadfast love of God and faithfulness coming together perfectly. Righteousness and peace, kissing, coming together perfectly. It's, it's the glory of heaven. It's the glory of the not yet. In the meantime, we're going to live in verses 4 through 7. And we're going we're gonna to live the realities of 8 and 9. We're going to have to call out to God, hey, we blew it again. I messed up again. Revive me. Listen, this is our story. And we live this out in light of all things being made new. That's what this psalm is doing. Remember the past tense. Remember being saved from your sin. If you were saved when you were a young child, remember what it was like learning and growing and understanding that a gracious and holy God has forgiven you because of Christ. Also, as a Christian, you're able to offer lament do you ever ask, again, do you ever ask questions like the psalm? Are you going to be mad at me forever? Are you going to forget me forever? Will your anger keep going to all generations? Listen, we need to practice this. Do you ever cry out to God asking Him to return and bring revival? Not just for you, but for our church, for our community. I think we are invited to do this corporately and individually. Lastly, look for hope. The glorious reality that one day all these disparate things that we can't see coming together, we see glimpses of them, we see tiny snatches and fits and starts of steadfast love and faithfulness and righteousness and peace, but one day all of that stuff is coming together fully. That is good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this psalm. May it teach us, especially those of us who are weary, though we're saved, though we're Christians, we defy you in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our actions. Lord, may this pave a way for us. May you help your body by it. May we call out to you and patiently wait on your voice speaking peace. Patiently wait on your salvation. And Lord, give us a longing for glory where steadfast love and faithfulness and righteousness and peace will all come together perfectly. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.